Chapter 4 The Life of George Washington In Words of One Syllable By Josephine Pollard This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org The Life of George Washington In Words of One Syllable By Josephine Pollard Chapter 4 To the Front the French chief in his note to Governor Dinwiddie had said, in words that were smooth but clear, that he would not leave the banks of the Ohio, so the English felt as if it were time for them to make a move, though they did not wish to bring on a war. Land was set off on the Ohio, where a fort was built, and the rest of it left for the use of the troops. Washington was asked to lead the troops, but he shrank from it, as a charge too great for one so young. So Joshua Fry was made colonel, and Washington, lieutenant-colonel, of a force of three hundred men. It was hard to get men to join the ranks. The pay was small, and those who had good farms and good homes did not care to leave them. Those who had a mind to go were for the most part men who did not like to work, and had no house or home that they could call their own. Some were barefoot, some had no shirts to their backs, and not a few were without coat or waistcoat, as the vest was called in those days. If it was hard work to get these kind of men, it was still more of a task to find those who would serve as chiefs, and Washington found himself left in charge of a lot of raw troops who knew no will but their own. But Van Brahm, who had taught Washington how to use the sword, was with him, and gave him just the aid he had need of at this time. On April 2, 1754, Washington, at the head of 150 men, set off for the new fort at the fork of the Ohio. The roads were rough and the march was slow, and it was not till April 20th that they reached Wills Creek. Here they were met by a small force, in charge of Captain Adam Stephen. The rest of the force, with the field guns, were to come by way of the Potomac. These last were in charge of Colonel Fry. When Washington reached Wills Creek, word was brought him that a large force of French troops had borne down on the new fort. Captain Trent, who was in charge of the few troops in the fort, was away at the time, and the young Ensign Ward did not know what to do. He sought the aid of Half-King, who told him to plead with the French, and to beg them to wait till the captain came back, and the two went at once to the French camp. But the French would not wait or make terms of peace. They had come as foes, and told Ensign Ward that if he did not leave the fort at once, with all his men, they would put him out by force. All the French would grant was that our men might take their tools with them. So the next morn they filed out of the fort, gave up their arms, and took the path to the woods. The French took the fort and built it up, and called it Fort Duquesne, which was the name of the governor of Canada. When the sad news was brought to Washington, he was at a loss to know what to do, or which way to turn. Here he was with a small band of raw troops right in the midst of foes, red and white, who would soon hem them in and use them ill if they found out where they were. Yet it would not do to turn back or show signs of fear. Colonel Fry had not yet come up, and the weight of care was thrown on Washington. He let the governors of Pennsylvania and Maryland know of his plight, and urged them to send on troops, but none came to his aid. He had a talk with his chief men, and they all thought it would be best to push on through the wild lands and make the road as they went on, and try to reach the mouth of Redstone Creek, where they would build a fort. By this means the men would be kept at work, their fears would be quelled, and a way made for the smooth and swift march of the troops in the rear. There was so much to be done that the men work as hard as they might 
could not clear the way with much speed. There were great trees to be cut down, rocks to be moved, swamps to be filled up, and streams to be bridged. While in the midst of these toils the bread gave out, and the lack of food made the men too weak to work. In spite of all these ills, they made out to move at a rate of four miles a day up steep hills and through dense woods that have since borne the name of the Shades of Death. While at a large stream where they had to stop to build a bridge, Washington was told that it was not worth while for him to try to go by land to Redstone Creek, when he could go by boat in much less time. This would be a good plan if it would work, and to make sure Washington took five men with him in a bark boat down the stream. One of these men was a redskin guide. When they had gone ten miles, the guide said that that was as far as he would go. Washington said, Why do you want to leave us now? We need you, and you know that we cannot get on without you. Tell us why you wish to leave. The red men said, Me want gifts. The red men will not work without them. The French know this and are wise. If you want the red men to be your guides, you must buy them. They do not love you so well that they will serve you without pay. Washington told the guide that when they got back, he would give them a fine white shirt with a frill on it and a good great coat, and this put an end to the strike for that time. They kept on in a small boat for a score of miles till they came to a place where there was a falls in the stream at least 40 feet. This put a stop to their course, and Washington went back to camp with his mind made up to go on by land. He was on his way to join his troops when word was brought him from Half King to be on his guard, as the French were close at hand. They had been on the march for two days, and meant to strike the first foe they should see. Half King said that he and the rest of his chiefs would be with Washington in five days to have a talk. Washington set to work at once to get his troops in shape to meet the foe. Scouts were sent out. There was a scare in the night. The troops sprang to arms and kept on the march till daybreak. In the meantime, at nine o'clock at night, word came from Half King, who was then six miles from the camp, that he had seen the tracks of two Frenchmen, and the whole force was near that place. Washington put himself at the head of two score men, left the rest to guard the camp, and set off to join Half King. The men had to grope their way by footpaths through the woods. The night was dark, and there had been quite a fall of rain, so that they slipped and fell and lost their way, and had to climb the great rocks, and the trees that had been blown down and blocked their way. It was near sunrise when they came up to the camp of Half King, who at once set out with a few of his braves to show Washington the tracks he had seen. Then Half King called up two of his braves, showed them the tracks, and told them what to do. They took the scent, and went off like hounds, and brought back word that they had traced the footprints to a place shut in by rocks and trees where the French were in camp. It was planned to take them off their guard. Washington was to move on the right, Half King and his men on the left. They made not a sound. Washington was the first on the ground, and as he came out from the rocks and trees at the head of his men, the French caught sight of him and ran to their arms. A sharp fire was kept up on both sides. De Germonville, who led the French troops, was killed with ten of his men. One of Washington's men was killed, and two or three met with wounds. None of the red men were hurt, as the French did not aim their guns at them at all. In less than half an hour the French gave way and ran, but Washington's men soon came up with them, took them, and they were sent in charge of a strong guard to Governor Dinwiddie. This was the first act of war in which blood had been shed, and Washington had to bear a great deal of blame 
from both French and England till the truth was made known. He was thought to have been too rash and too bold, and in more haste to make war than to seek for peace. These sins were charged to his youth, for it was not known then how much more calm and wise and shrewd he was than most men who were twice his age. The French claimed that this band had been sent out to ask Washington, in a kind way, to leave the lands that were held by the crown of France. But Washington was sure they were spies. And Half King said they had bad hearts, and if our men were such fools as to let them go, he would give them no more aid. Half King was full of fight, and Washington was flushed with pride, and in haste to move on and brave the worst. He rode home. The Mingos have struck the French, and I hope will give a good blow before they have done. Then he told of the fight he had been in, and how he had won it, and was not hurt though he stood in the midst of the fierce fire. The balls whizzed by him, and, said Washington, I was charmed with the sound. This boast came to the ears of George the Second, who said, in a dry sort of way, he would not say so if he had heard many. When long years had passed, someone asked Washington if he had made such a speech. If I did, he said, it was when I was young, and he was but twenty-two years of age. He knew that as soon as the French heard of the fight and their bad luck, they would send a strong force out to meet him. So he set all his men to work to add to the size of the earthwork, and to fence it in so that it might be more of a stronghold. Then he gave to it the name of Fort Necessity for it had been thrown up in great haste in time of great need. When food was so scant it was feared the troops would starve to death. At one time, for six days, they had no flour and, of course, no bread. News came of the death of Colonel Fry at Wills Creek, and Washington was forced to take charge of the whole force. Fry's troop, three hundred in all, came up from Wills Creek, and Half King brought forty red men with their wives and young ones, and all these had to be fed and cared for. Young as he was, Washington was like a father to this strange group of men. On Sundays, when in camp, he read to them from the word of God, and by all his acts made them feel that he was a good and true man and fit to be their chief. The red men did quite well as spies and scouts, but were not of much use in the field, and they, and some men from South Carolina, did much to vex young Washington. Half-King did not like the way that white men fought, so he took himself and his band off to a safe place. The white men from South Carolina, who had come out to serve their king, were too proud to soil their hands or do hard work, nor would they be led by a man of the rank of colonel. In the midst of all these straits, Washington stood calm and firm. The South Carolina troops were left to guard the fort, while the rest of the men set out to clear the road to Redstone Creek. Their march was slow and full of toil, and at the end of two weeks they had gone but thirteen miles. Here at Gist's home, where they stopped to rest, word came to Washington that a large force of the French were to be sent out to fight him. Word was sent to the fort to have the men that were there to join them with all speed. They reached Gist's at dusk, and by dawn of the next day all our troops were in that place, where it was at first thought they would wait for the foe. But this plan they gave up, for it was deemed best to make haste back to the fort, where they might at least screen themselves from the fire of the foe. The roads were rough, the heat was great, the food was scant, and the men weak and worn out. 
there were but few steeds, and these had to bear such great loads that they could not move with speed. Washington gave up his own horse and went on foot, and the rest of the headmen did the same. The troops from Virginia worked with a will and would take turns and haul the big field guns, while the King's troops from South Carolina walked at their ease and would not lend a hand or do a stroke of work. On the morn of July 3rd, scouts brought word to the fort that the French were but four miles off and in great force. Washington at once drew up his men on the ground outside of the fort to wait for the foe. Ere noon, the French were quite near the fort, and the sound of their guns was heard. Washington thought this was a trick to draw his men out into the woods, so he told them to hold their fire till the foe came in sight. But as the French did not show themselves, though they still kept up their fire, he drew his troops back to the fort and bade them fire at will and do their best to hit their mark. The rain fell all day long, so that the men in the fort were half drowned, and some of the guns scarce fit for use. The fire was kept up till eight o'clock at night, when the French sent word they would like to make terms with our men. Washington thought it was a trick to find out the state of things in the fort, and for a time gave no heed to the call. The French sent two or three times, and at last brought the terms for Washington to read. They were in French. There was nothing at hand to write with, so Van Brahm, who could speak French, was called on to give the key. It was a queer scene. A light was brought, and held close to his face, so that he could see to read. The rain fell in such sheets that it was hard to work to keep up the flame. Van Brahm mixed up Dutch, French, and English in a sad way, while Washington and his chief aides stood near with heads bent, and tried their best to guess what was meant. They made out at last that the main terms were that the troops might march out of the fort, and fear no harm from French or Redskins as they made their way back to their homes. The drums might beat and the flags fly, and they could take with them all the goods and stores and all that was in the fort but the large guns. These the French would break up, and our men should pledge themselves not to build on the lands which were claimed by the King of France for the space of one year. The weak had to yield to the strong, and Washington and his men laid down their arms and marched out of the fort. A note of thanks was sent to Washington, and all his head men but Van Brahm, who was thought to have read the terms in such a way as to harm our side and serve the French. But there were those who felt that Van Brahm was as true as he was brave, and that it was the fault of his head and not his heart, for it was a hard task for a Dutchman to turn French into English and make sense of it. End of chapter 4